This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I am very excited today to have an author who I am meeting for the first time. She's like my new favorite author and a former sister from New York City, um, Michelle Walker coined, and she coined the famous term, which you have probably heard, the gray rhino. And uh, that is in reference to obvious, probable, and impactful risks. Uh, Michelle is, an ex- first of all, her writing is amazing. I read all the time. And her book is without any jargon, but incredibly deep and incredibly eye-opening. Uh, her newest book is actually called You Are What You Risk. And I can't say enough about how important this book is for every trader to read. But honestly, I think for every person, because this is going to show up in your personal life, whether it's your health or in your business and or around choices by way of real estate decisions, by way of family decisions, by way of uh, every interaction, the knowing and understanding your own risk profile is going to make a big difference in all the relationships you have. So I'm going to finish reading her formal bio, but I'm very excited to have you here today, Michelle. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Now, I don't know how I'm going to live up to that amazing introduction, but I'm looking forward to it. You will. You will undoubtedly live up to it. Uh, so I just want to speak a little bit about your other books, uh, because You Are What You Risk actually came really out of her first book, The Great Rhino. Uh, it uh, was is a bestseller, how to recognize and act on the obvious dangers we ignore. And if you have... Uh, the time, I can't recommend enough viewers and listeners, please watch her nine-minute TED Talk on The Great Rhino, because in it, she really articulates how the concept of a black swan, which you know we all heard about when that book came out, is actually sort of, in my opinion, kind of gets all the attention when really it's the great rhinos that are the ones that we should probably be much more familiar with. Uh, so bottom line is uh, China's leadership actually has used uh, to frame and communicate its entire crackdown on financial risk thanks to her book. Her book is actually sitting, uh, how do you say his name, the leader of China's name again? Yes, her book sits on his desk for crying out loud. Um, and, and this metaphor has actually moved markets, shaped financial policies, and it's made headlines around the world. Uh, it, it also helped frame glo- uh, the warnings way ahead of the global pandemic with COVID-19. And it, this is a very sexy piece of news. It inspired the lyrics of the hit pandemic pop single, Blue and Gray, by the mega band BTS about depression as a gray rhino. Uh, 
2 million views for Michelle's TED Talk that was done in 2019 about the great rhino. Uh, and also, Michelle is the founder of Chicago-based strategy firm, Gray Rhino & Company. She draws on three decades of experience, first as a financial journalist and then uh, as a media and think tank executive. She's been honored as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, and she's also a Guggenheim Fellow. Um, she's held leadership positions at the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, World Policy Institute, and International Finance Review. Uh, she's a sought-after media commentator on the COVID-19 pandemic now, so we're very lucky to even get to have her here. Michelle, tell me, what did I not include in your amazing bio? Thank you so much. It's, uh, you know, it's funny to, to see how my life has actually come full circle. And when I was in, uh, in high school, I actually wanted to be a psychiatrist, very interested in psychology, wow. and ended up going into, you know, finance and all sorts of other things, but have sort of come full circle as you know, as you know, there's a lot of psychology and social psychology in you are what you risk. So uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of, uh, of everything. So you came home again, you're coming home to where you wanted to be in the beginning. That's really kind of cool. That's probably why I, I think it reads so uh, the reads it reads so smoothly, because it, it feels a little bit to me like, uh, you know, not in self-help like in the sense of like i was able to self-help myself by looking at the way you describe things and i was like oh do i do that how how am i experiencing this i'm i'm learning how to become a day trader and uh because a lot of the clients i work with now are day traders i'm looking through the lens of how is this going to benefit them never mind how is it going to benefit me personally so it, it really reads so smoothly even though you're talking about some big concepts so Tell us how it came about, where it came from with your sure. focus on this. Well, you know, as, as you know, the gray rhino came out of the, the difference between the Argentinian and the Greek debt crises, where Argentina had a chance to, to do it in a little more orderly way and they didn't take it. And Greece, it was still messy, but they actually sat down to Greece and its creditors and they avoided a much bigger chaos. And and I was one of the early voices on the Greek debt restructuring coming out and saying, you, you've got to just, you've got to take a haircut. You've got to do preemptive restructuring or, you know, the Euro and everything else is going to come down. And, you know, right, right around the time that Greece and uh, its creditors found an agreement in 2012, was, I was sort of wrestling with some, some personal things. I'd been running an org organization for, uh, for about five years and was thinking about, what I want to do next, where I want to go, and hadn't been writing for a while and realized I needed to do that. And so mm -hmm. the question in my mind was really, what makes the difference between a Greece mm -hmm. and an Argentina? You know, a company that yeah. sees the big scary thing coming at them and does something and, you know, a company or country that doesn't and they just get, let themselves get flattened. So that was mm -hmm. the real origin for the gray rhino concept. Um, the, the gray part came out a little bit of a, of a joke about the black swan, um, but it's actually very, very different. It's not, it's not a derivative uh, metaphor. Uh, when the, this rhino, you know, big scary thing with a horn coming at you, two tons, when that came into my head, I was in my office with, with a friend who was a corporate M&A lawyer. So he made kind of a black swan joke. He's like, oh, you could call it a black rhino. And I had been to the zoo when I was in grade school, and I had this faint idea that there was such a thing as the black rhino, and that there is a particular formal name of a species, but there's also a white rhino species, neither one of them is the color that they're called. They're both gray, they're not black, they're not white. Wow. And wow. so that to me seemed to be a great metaphor for how much more likely than we want to admit 
we are to, you know, to ignore the big thing coming at us. And so it's, yeah. you know, the opposite of the black swan, which is so improbable, you can't even picture it. But it's also different from the elephant in the room, which just stands there. And by definition, nobody says or done, does anything about it, which is not okay. Like the gray rhino is a thing that people are talking about, that everybody knows you need to do something about it, And they're, they're talking about it. And only some people seize the moment and yeah. they get out of the way or they actually harness the power of this crisis to do something better. Uh, and the you know, unlucky few get, get trampled. So that book came out in 2016. And I was doing book tour all around the world. It came out in China in 2017 and was an immediate bestseller. Uh, I, I've made uh, six or seven trips to China since then oh, until wow. none of us, until we, we had to stop traveling. Um, uh, and in China, this, this uh, 20-something young man came up to me. I was giving a book talk in Shanghai and he wanted an autograph and a selfie. And he says, oh, you helped me so much with my life. I have to say, are you, are you talking to someone behind me? Cause, you know, like I, you know, I do policy and finance. I don't, I don't really do self-help, although, you know, it's interesting that, that the new book has self-help applications. And also on so many of my other talks, people would always ask, how do I apply this to my personal life? Yeah. And then a couple of bloggers just went out and, and did it. You know, a guy in Indiana uh, did this wonderful blog post about, about breast cancer and uh, other people applied it to, you know, career changes and relationships and personal finance and, and all of these things. And, and I was really wrestling with what, what do I do with this? Because I'm, I'm a policy and finance person. It's, you know, it's not my experience. It's not my brand, but people seem to really organically want this, you know, this explanation of, of why people personally deal with a gray rhino or, or not. And so I was talking to my friends, I'm really torn, I'm struggling. Yeah. And a very dear friend of mine, CEO of a private equity firm said, there's more of a connection than you think. He said, last week our investment committee met and we talked about the um, investments that uh, disappointed. <laughs> I think he probably used some stronger words than that. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he said in every case, all of the warning signs were there. He says, but it's not what you would think. He's like, it wasn't the finances. It wasn't the technology. It wasn't the product. It wasn't the macroeconomic environment. It was bad personal risk decisions by the CEO. It was the speeding. It was the drunk driving. It was the cheating. It was the domestic violence. And they didn't pay attention to those personal signs. Yeah. And so I realized, wait a minute, there actually is this connection between personal and business. And then at the same time, I was getting a lot of, of questions from people about why is this so huge in Asia? But at the same time, I was getting all this pushback in the States going black swan, black swan. Um, you know, when they were really misusing the term, either yeah. using it in hindsight as a cop out or yeah. like spotting ahead, you know, this armchair black, black swan spotting when by definition you can't see ahead of time. So it didn't yes. make any sense. <laughs> and you know, what people were really looking for was, was a gray rhino. And so people said, why, why is there a big difference between China and the West? And I would go to China and everybody was talking about financial risk. And in the States, people were like, let's pump more air into the market. And you know, of course, day traders benefit from that right now and are continuing to benefit from it. But I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking ahead at the, at the rhino that that, that is creating yes. uh, for the real economy. And like people wouldn't talk about it in the States. And so I was like, what's, what's up with that? And so that became this sort of cultural, personal uh, 
question. You know, what, what does your culture and your country mean for whether you deal with a gray rhino or not? And what does your personal attitude mean for dealing with the gray rhino? And so the book actually looks at this feedback loop among the three, which is a very risky thing to do because publishers like, you know, the self-help shelf or the current affairs shelf or the business books shelf. And I just didn't feel I could address it adequately by not addressing all three. And so I guess, you know, if you think about it, the thrust of the book really is a business book, but, you know, as you said, there's, there's a sort of a self-help aspect. There are certainly some, some um, policy and, and global relevant things and it all works together. Yeah, I, I've, I'm so happy that you were true to that, working them all together, because I feel that sometimes publishers are limited in their perspective. And I, I, I see our, who we are as people, as a cobweb, as how we show up in business. They can't be separated. And that, you know, evidence of that colleague of your who colleague of yours who saw that these companies that blew up that there were these signs and you know that that's why that it maybe maybe we're going to create the new topic uh michelle will tell publishers that we have something here that the personal is what shows up in business and they just got to get you know kind of up with the program because i think we we are seeing something that needs to be looked at that isn't paid attention to enough Absolutely. And, you know, doing the reporting for, for the book, I had an experience that I, I'd never had before. You know, before A Grey Rhino, there are actually two other books, much more policy focused. And with this book, people I was asking questions about were saying, I've never heard these questions before. And I'm learning so much from the questions you're asking me. Like the interviewees were learning from the question as much as I was learning from them and readers will learn from them. And, you know, some of them say to me, this is just really, really important stuff. And so it is, it is opening a brand new conversation, which is, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's risky, definitely, but it's very exciting to me. And as I talk about in the book, if you, if you have a really strong sense of purpose and why something is important, it doesn't become so quote unquote risky. It becomes the path that you have to take and there's much less choice involved. And, yes. and for me, risk is all about making choices. And when you have a very clear sense of what you really need to do, then making any choice other than that one just doesn't work for you. Yes. You spoke a lot of, in the book about the concept of agency. And that's what it sounds like you're talking about now. So just speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you picked up on that because in 2016, you started seeing in the popular mainstream media all over the place, this word agency, you know, human agency, sense of human agency, you know, this belief in your power to affect things and talk about a lack of agency, which often was used as a way to describe the sort of, you know, new, you know, Trump movement and, and all of these people who felt like they didn't have any power over things. And they also mm-hmm. felt like, you know, the government didn't have any power. It wasn't able to do things, you know, partly because of all the, the, the gridlock and polarization that we have. And once I started realizing that, it was just like everywhere. Like, I, you know, it's, it's like, you know, uh, what is the bug, uh, the, the Volkswagen bug game you yeah, play the, in the car? Yeah, for you, you find the red Volkswagen and then you see yeah. it everywhere. Yes. Yeah, and you start seeing, yeah, yeah, yeah. so exactly. Um, or, you know, you buy a kind of car and then you see the right. same car everywhere. Right. It was kind of like that. And, you know, the thing that really clinched it was when 
Gwyneth Paltrow was interviewed in the New York Times Magazine, and she used the sense, the word, you know, sense of human agency. And I just went, whoa. And, you know, looked at the Google searches for it, and it just <laughs> yeah. went way up. So clearly, it's something that's on people's mind, this sense yeah. of, you know, do we have power to change things or not? And that sense of agency is so closely tied to the risks that you take. You know, when, when you look at risk perception, so there's two things. There's the risk perception, there's the, the how how risky you think something is, whether you're paying attention to it at all, how worried you are about it, you know, whether you even see something as a risk or not. And then on the other hand, there's sort of your, your appetite or you know, your tolerance, like how much are you willing to take on? And both our perceptions and our tolerance are affected by how much control we feel we have over something and how, voluntary, how voluntarily we are taking something on. And you could see this in the aftermath of the 737 MAX uh, tragedy in that there was a, a week or so uh, you know, after the Ethiopian Airlines crash and before the, the planes were pulled. And you see the competing statements coming out from the pilots and the flight attendants. And of course, the pilots have tons of knowledge about you know, how the system works and, and they feel a lot of control because they're the ones driving. And they came out with a statement going, oh, yeah, I can stay in the air. It's, it's fine. And the flight attendants were like, no, I do, not, I do not want to fly on that. And it's a great example. So when you're, when you're looking at your own attitude about certain kinds of risk, and this goes for, for everything from, you know, from, from health to finance to career to relationships, the more knowledge you have about something, the more confident you are taking the risk. Yeah. And, uh, and, and similarly, you know, this, this sort of amount of knowledge helps you feel more control over things. There's, there's really this feedback loop. And also there's a feedback loop with the risk itself. I talk about it often as being kind of like Schrodinger's cat, you know, where, you know, you don't really know the state, you know, but at the act of observing actually yes. changes the state of things. Yeah. Yes. And yes. risk is like that. The, the act of acknowledging and observing it, uh, if you're smart, uh, leads you to do more to try to prepare for it and learn yeah. about it, which actually reduces the risk that whatever it is is going to go out of hand because you're going to have more tools to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. One of the as a coach, one of the things that I am a huge advocate of people developing within themselves is a comfort with discomfort, because if you can learn how to not be so triggered with discomfort, you ultimately it have short-term discomfort, but long-term uh, it dissipates because you've been able to sit with it. It it's you know in Hawaii they say same 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 is what I want to say, what you just said. It, it's true. And, it, you know, that goes to this relationship between risk and uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, there was a while, about a year ago, when it seemed like every single bacon email list that I was on had uncertainty in the headlines of the emails that were showing up in my inbox. It was like the it word last year, right? And uh, I actually wrote for my column in Strategy and Business about how uncertainty, the ability to deal with uncertainty had actually been identified as one of the top leadership skills for the 21st wow. century. And, and I talk about that a little bit in You Are What You Risk. And, you know, dealing with uncertainty is, is not easy. But actually, the better you are at dealing with risks, which actually means the better you are at making choices, uh, even mm -hmm. when they're hard choices, the more comfortable you are at dealing with uncertainty. 
And another really interesting point about risk and uncertainty is that, you know, the classical economic definition of risk versus uncertainty is that risk is something that you can quantify. It's it's sort of an uncertainty that you can quantify. You can estimate the probability of. Uh, And uncertainty is something you just, you can't really easily assign a number to it. So, you know, Frank Knight and John Maynard Keynes wrote about this. And so in the sort of professional quant finance world, uh, you get these actuarial tables, you get all these calculations, you know, and people are trading based on the pricing of risk. But when you get down to it, some of this pricing of, you know, these quantifiable risks is pulled straight out of the air or, you know, another three letter word that starts with A. And it's, you know, like the, the, the subprime, uh, the subprime mortgage uh, packages, uh, yep. you know, those, those, those MBSs were, you know, oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Investment grade. And so I think it's important to tell us sometimes to tell ourselves sometimes that the risk that we calculate is often an illusion. It's, it's a way to feel more control. Ironically, yes. you know, you were just yes. talking about control. It's a way to feel control over something. And so if yep. you see that somebody else has assigned a risk number to something, you want to ask, you know, where where are they coming from? You know, are they, they trying to sell something? Or, yes. you know, and sometimes they're trying to sell the rating. And so it, it yes. looks less risky than it really is. And so this, this perception of risk aspect is so important. And that's why we need to understand the, the biases that we often bring to our risk judgments. Yeah, I've, I've heard that often about the quants that, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's so much, it's so impersonal, but that those numbers are still being fed into those algorithms by human beings. And human beings are not going to be robotic, no matter how much we may be a left brainer or a type A, we're still human and we're going to have a perspective. And that's where those numbers clearly came from when we were talking about the, the, the mortgage crisis. Like, oh, well, these are, you know, that was, and that was the way it had always been. In, so they presume they were correct. It's true. And with algorithms, you, you hear about this you, the, you, with the, the controversies about you know, algorithms and, and facial identification and things. Well, the, those algorithms are fed underlying information, which is based on human biases. And so the algorithms often amplify these human biases. And so that's, you know, it's actually quite concerning when you look at rating and uh, you know, I forget the latest numbers, but you know the percentage of trades that are done uh, algorithmically, you know, this high-speed trading is is quite uh, astonishing, and it seems like it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Which means that there are all these trades, these market movements out there that are affected by human biases that are like so way so far deep into this algorithm that sometimes we don't even know what they are. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Because our audience primarily are day traders, uh, what do you feel would be the most shocking thing that your book would have to teach them? Most shocking. <laughs> That's, you know, there were so, so many things that were, were shocking uh, to me. And I guess there's like the most shocking and maybe the most important message. But the thing that was most shocking to me uh, was the, the physiological side of things. That if you eat spicy food, there's research that shows that you're going to be more risk-seeking for a few hours afterwards. 
there's other research shows, you know, the, the, the fragrances that you're smelling, there's, you know, different kinds of smells will produce, you know, different, uh, different heart rate reactions and different, different stress reactions and, and in turn, different, different risk decisions. And there's even some of it showing that, that, uh, you know, flowery smelled, uh, smelling uh, lotion, which is often perceived as more quote unquote feminine, which, which is a whole other story that you get into and do get into in the book. But yeah. you know, but that sometimes there, there's, there's some men who, if, if it's suggested that they're like less masculine, they right. actually try to appear more masculine by, by taking riskier and riskier and riskier trades. So, you know, it, it, I think if you put all that together, it's really that a lot of the risk decisions that you make, are based on things that you haven't even thought about at all. You, you think you're actively making a decision, but it's the temperature in the room. Uh, you know, it's what you had for lunch. It's like whether you're a smoker or not. It's the people around you. It's, it's your culture. It's all of these things you haven't even thought about. And you, know, you think you're making a risk decision for yourself. And, but without understanding all of those other influences on why you're taking the risks that you are, you are not making those decisions independently. But once you do understand them, you can actually uh, optimize your habits to make much better risk decisions. I'm trying to remember in the book when you talk about temperature, because, you know, the hedge fund, I remember work, yeah, they all had those fleece vests on because the offices were kept at like 65 degrees, if not cooler. So remind me, what did it say again about the temperature? Well, there was a study of birds, I think, and like the, the colder it got, uh, the the um, and I forget how they measured the riskiness of the birds, but or maybe it's the farther they would fly or whatever. But yeah. um, you know, the more risk they would take to to get food, and and I think that there is a you know something under you know the, under sure. your thinking survival. process, also like you know, we got to survive, yeah, yeah. But also, yeah. people there was somebody who I think was uh, immersed in, in ice and very very cold temperatures. It actually so slows down a lot of responses, including your your risk response. And mm -hmm. you know, I've also heard that they they keep offices cold uh, when there are a lot of men because you know men are expected well not so much as they used to be, but you know they were yeah. always expected to wear suits to work and right. had like several layers more clothing on than right. women. And so there's two things. There's there's one that uh, is a physiological response to cold, but there's also, it depends on whether you like cold or not because mm -hmm. your comfort right. level also right. is important. And you wanna be comfortable enough that you're not stressed and making bad decisions, but you don't wanna be so comfortable that you're not you know, reaching and making that stretch goal and making decisions yep. that are out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what, and so you started to say surprising when I asked you about the most shocking, what, what was there another piece to that that you were going to speak to surprising and or important, I think was the word you used. Well, just supposed to be important that, that, you know, the thing that I think day traders should take away is that you want to do a deep dive into why you're making the risk decisions that you are so that you're not led astray. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research showing that at the top of markets, that's when you see a lot of, of retail investors participating. And we certainly saw that with the with the mortgage-backed securities and things. And, yeah. and you know, the bankers are talking about, oh, we're, we're spreading risk, you know, as, as far as we can, and we're democratizing the markets. In fact, I remember in, oh, it must have been like 1999, 2000, it was the height of the dot-com bubble. 
And uh, that was the last time I heard so much talk about democratizing markets. And, you know, I, I, was, a, I was a financial journalist by then. And, and a lot of my friends were getting poached from one financial site to another. And, you know, at, you know, wages that we just like couldn't even imagine as journalists. And one friend got one of those jobs. And you know, the mission of the site was to democratize finance. And I worry a little bit about, you know, democratize finance means push the risk off on the yeah. little guys. Yeah. But we have a very, very interesting dynamic right now, this sort of, you know, David versus Goliath. Now that we've got social media and all of these new influences on, on mood and uh, those are changing the trading dynamics in, in ways that you know, a lot of my you know, professional finance friends don't understand. And, and yes. I don't pretend, I, shouldn't, I mean, I don't think anybody should claim to pretend to understand because it's, sure. it's sure. so new, but you're yeah. seeing different influences on which directions stocks are, are going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So gosh, if I think about what you just said, Michelle, uh, you know, in your book, you talked about the, the people that you spend your time with, right? So if you think, if I think now put, you know, your book, I'm starting to look through your book as a new lens on the world. And what I'm seeing right now is GameStop. Part of that momentum is because of that cultural aspect of we're going to show the man, right? Whether they were right or wrong, but that cultural, everybody's in it with me, right? That probably was a big part of what your book speaks to around the people you're spending your time with. Absolutely. And also a phenomenon in the book that, uh, that social scientists call risky shift. Uh, risky which is shift, right. When, exactly. When you're in a group of people, you're likely to be either way too conservative, which is risky in and of itself, yes. or take way bigger risks. Yes. And it depends on your culture. It depends on other things. It depends on the composition of the group. But that group dynamics tend to magnify the mistakes that individual humans make. And being in a group also makes it harder to flag potential alarm signals. This is something I talk about a lot in The Gray Rhino and, yeah. uh, and somewhat less in You Are What You Risk. So that, you know, who are your peers? And if you don't have that chatty best friend in there, you know, the, the, the Aquafina character in Crazy Rich Agents who's saying, don't wear that right dress. Right, right. You know, if you don't have that person who's going to tell you the things that you don't want to hear, look, do your damnedest go out and find one yeah. of those and make sure that the sources that you're looking at come from a variety of places mm -hmm. and a variety of perspectives, you know, really open, open up your perspective on the world so that you can see different possibilities so that you're open to and aware of risk factors that you might not have been aware of. But you know, that also means that you'll, you'll be open to opportunities you might not yes. have been aware of. Yes, for sure. God, Aquavina's character in that movie <laughs> was the best. I, I mean, that was, it, I just thought everybody needs to have that kind of a person in their lives because she just was a truth teller repeatedly. The, the other thing I'm thinking too right now is that what your book is actually an incredibly self-serving argument for why it's so impor important to be a participant in diversity. Absolutely. And it, this goes into, it, it is something I went into in The Gray Rhino as well, that, you know, if everybody around the table comes from, you know, the same, the same boarding school and the same age and the same background and the same perspective, this, this group think 
phenomenon. This, this, yeah. you know, this, yes. this inability to see alternative perspectives gets that much stronger. And it's, it's particularly a problem if a company doesn't have people who, who can relate to their customers or yeah. their investors. And uh, another interesting thing, I, I go into this in the gender chapter, is that when you have a mixed gender or you know other mixed uh, demographic group, uh, people actually do think a little bit more about the kind of risks that they're going to take, and you come up with with smarter decisions. You know, there, I, I challenge in the book this idea of you know risk averse versus you know risk risk seeking, yeah. because this idea of risk averse is all things being equal and all things are rarely equal. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's some research that actually shows that uh, women are more willing than men to take social risks, like, you know, speaking up. And I think it's partly because we've had more experience speaking up in situations where it's really hard to speak up, where you're the yes. only woman in the room. Uh, you yeah. hear about this uh, heap heating uh, phenomenon where a woman has a brilliant idea and everybody ignores her. And then five minutes later, a guy says the same thing. And everyone says, oh. exactly. you know, women are a lot more experienced dealing with, uh, with rejection, with yeah. not being yeah. rewarded for doing the difficult thing, which means they've got actually a, a much more developed risk muscle or talking about millennials in the market. Uh, I talked to this, this really wonderful financial advisor, uh, Dennis Nolte, who works with a lot of, uh, millennials and has a background actually in psychology, which I think is wow. why he's so insightful. But he says, well, you know, if you've got a student loan that, you know, you're paying close to 10% on and the stock market is looking really toppy and everyone's worried about inflation and the Fed rising, increasing rates and the possibility of, of things falling and, and volatility much higher and all the predictions saying it's not going to rise as much as it's going to. And you've got a clear 10% implied return by paying down your student loan. Well, doesn't that kind of make sense? And if you don't have a rainy day fund, you know, does it really make sense to put half of your savings into GameStop or whatever? And I, I hear stories like that of millennials having, you know, $50,000 in savings and putting half of it into something very, very risky, very, very volatile, not a diversified portfolio. And it just, it just, it scares me. It really yeah. does. Yeah. For sure, for sure, and and where what would you say informs that comfort or you know perhaps inappropriate discomfort with taking those kind of risks? In addition to just the people around them, there's other factors, and just get into some of them a little bit for people for those who haven't sure. read the book yet. Well, a big part of it is your underlying personality. Mm. And uh, I met this, this really amazing uh, psychologist, Jeff Tricky, uh, in the UK with uh, his company is called Psychological Consultancy in this cute little town, Tunbridge Wells, an hour's train ride south of London that, that I was lucky enough to go and visit. And they developed something called the risk type compass, which is based on a lot, you know, years and years of, of uh, social psychology research and, uh, and psychometric tests, which are a whole other controversy I'm not going to go into. You know, you've got to use them yeah. right. You know, they're, they're yeah. useful up to a point, but if you abuse yeah. them, they can... Uh, being yep. wrong, but I think there's a lot of use for this, this risk type compass that uh, looks at how impulsive or methodical you are in dealing with risk. Uh, and then on the other poll, uh, how anxious or calm you tend to be in face of risk. And then there's some, you know, some points in between. And those, those personality traits uh, 
a lot of them are, are innate. Uh, and they'll actually shape how you respond to certain experiences, like like, like a shock. Um, and those those are really important. And knowing yourself is hugely important. And, you know, you need some good introspection and reflection here. There was one woman he talked to who was very disappointed with the results of her test because she wanted to see herself as, as you know, more adventurous and carefree yeah. and, and risk-taking. Yeah. Um, but she actually was able to put that insight to use in helping with the, the company's uh, GDPR strategy, the, the sort of you know data privacy regulations that came out a couple of years ago, they're the reason that you're getting carpal tunnel syndrome from clicking on every website yeah, saying you exactly. have stupid cookies. <laughs> so you know they need like a cop going, yes, I accept the stupid cookies. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know if you don't follow those, you get all sorts of fines and things. And yeah. um, so she took it upon herself and she was a very methodical kind of person and very wow. you know, attentive to risk. And she actually made sure that the company was, uh, was prepared. This was a company in, in Europe. And so when you understand your strengths, yeah, actually that'll help you decide, you know, where you're more comfortable investing or what kind of job you're going to take. Yeah. It's yeah. very interesting that certain, certain professions have a concentration of certain, uh, certain risk types, but it also tells you, Hey, I'm I'm likely to go jump off the cliff. I'm gonna I'm gonna leap without looking. Maybe I need someone in my life who's a little more methodical and a little more anxious than I am. You know, someone who compliments my weaknesses. And I think we could all use that. And when you're looking at a team, look at that composition among the team. You you go to say a law firm, and you know the partners are often likely to have very similar risk patterns, although it, you know, it depends on the kind of lawyer. I mean, a litigator mm-hmm. and a you know, contracts lawyer are going to have very, very different profiles. Yeah, but, you know, have sure. a different, a different, different professions, different demographics, and, and demographics aren't an exact proxy for risk takings. We've got a lot of stereotypes um, yeah. about different ethnic groups and genders and all, all of that. But that break, break some ideas. Break some down, break some down. Some of those, uh, you know, perspectives that we all think the gender, you know, the gender, uh, name a couple of stereotypes that are not the way we think they, we've always believed them to be. Well, you know, I just mentioned the, you know, the millennials. So, you know, see all these headlines, millennials are so risk averse. And it's like, they're actually kind of smart. A lot of them are. (laughs) And, 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 you know, millennials having grown up, with some of the financial turbulence of the last yes. you know, decade or so, they've actually got more experience with uncertainty than you know, that my generation did at, yes. at our age. Yes. Women, again, you see all of these headlines and academic studies, oh, women are risk averse. Well, this, this wonderful, wonderful scholar, Julie Nelson at University of Boston did a study where she looked at all of these other studies, which was like a meta study, and she applied new statistical techniques and she looked at how these studies were done and the degrees of statistical significance, which often were this small or, you know, sometimes even smaller than that, you know, actually not quite as significant as anyone would count. And she's had a lot of a look at averages. But when you look at the range of risk views across men and women, uh, she said there's a 95% overlap. Wow. Yeah. So this whole women are risk averse, it just like, yeah, makes me, makes my head want to explode. There are differences, as I mentioned before, you know, social yeah. settings, you know, men are more likely to, to, you know, risky sex, risky driving, but, you know, there are some situation specific differences. And what's interesting too, is that with similar amounts of knowledge and experience, a lot of the differences uh, converge. 
Wow. You know, so you have an, an inexperienced man and an inexperienced woman. The inexperienced man is much more likely to do the looking before the leaping before looking. And, you know, the woman's going to be a little bit more, you know, measured and thoughtful and make a better risk decision. And there's something called stereotype threat, which is that in many situations, we'll take the kind of risk decisions that we think we're supposed to take oh, as opposed to what we're comfortable taking. So there's a sort of, you know, risk wow. dysphoria, <laughs> you might call it. Yes, yes. And, you know, it was very interesting. I was, you know, I had some, some friends who were beta reading a draft of the book. And I had sent this, this chapter on gender uh, to a friend who actually ended up being quoted in the book. Uh, and a man, really, really smart, uh, you know, risk and data science uh, consultant, um, very thoughtful. And uh, anyway, he wrote me back with some of his experiences being, you know, the man who kind of raises his hand and said, well, have we considered this? Have we considered that? And he said, you know, it's, it's not a typical male response. Uh, and that he'll sometimes get these, you know, alpha male yellings. What do you mean? What are you talking about? And, and that, you know, that, that women are more likely to bring in experts, you know, to seek that kind of knowledge, to make themselves more comfortable and to make better decisions. And, and so just as some women, I, I think particularly, you know, younger, not as confident, might be taking less risk than they personally would be comfortable with because they think they, you know, should be a certain way. Yeah. I think the same thing is true for men. Now, there's probably some men who are wow. showing a certain amount of bravado when yeah. it's not really what they're comfortable with. And that's yes. actually, it's, it's not good for anyone. No, yeah. no, that it almost sounds like I'm a huge fan of the documentary called The Mask You Live In, which speaks about the cultural indoctrination of men to be these manly men and how it, it, they are, I think, like you spoke to before, this, this, you know, that sense of, I just, I have to show up this way because I won't be considered a real man if I don't. Yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that out. It sounds fantastic, but you know, the scholar it's Michael amazing. Kimmel has done some really good stuff uh, on this, or uh, uh, Jessica Klein writing about, you know, wow. bullying and, yep. uh, you know, these sort of how these gender stereotypes play into all of these factors in our society and they're, they're actually quite dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say, go to say something, Lucas? I, may have I was just, just thinking about how, yeah, it seems like so many things are part of our culture um, and that we discount it. We're like, we're, we're this individual and we make all of our decisions. And then you look at, you know, when you look at the broad data, it's like, Oh, maybe I'm just part of this culture and the, my, everything is just, I will kind of act like the people around me. Yeah. So. Yes. yes. And that's exactly why I ended up taking this, you know, this, this broader approach to the book, to the, you know, the business, the individual, the organization and the broader society. There's a, a chapter in the book uh, about risk differences by country. Mm -hmm. And I, oh, I was yes. just fascinated by a lot of stereotypes that uh, Asians and Westerners have about each other mm -hmm. are completely out of whack. Uh, wow. And, you know, we just, we, you know, there, there was an experiment it, with, uh, it was like a financial risk experiment where both the Americans and the Chinese students thought that the Americans would be much bigger risk takers. And what ended up happening was that they both chose about the same level of riskiness, which surprised everybody. But yeah. when they looked at the perceptions part of it, uh, the Chinese actually uh, didn't think it was quite as risky as the Americans did. Wow. So they perceived the risk as being less. And so actually, you know, their risk tolerance was lower, like the amount of risk they were willing to take 
uh, was lower because they just didn't think it was as risky in the first place. And, wow. you know, the Americans, you know, yes, they were riskier, but it ended up at the same point. And, and it shows how risk tends to be this, it's almost like a room full of funhouse mirrors. And when you start yes. looking at it and, you know, the more aware you are of a risk, the more likely you are to do things to deal with it. And the researchers looked at their theory about the difference for this was uh, something called the cushion effect, which is that in a, in a collectivist society where you feel that there's, uh, you know, there's a social network or that the government will step in and solve a problem, uh, you're more likely to take certain risks. It's why, you know, when I, when I go to China, people will, you know, people just despair. They say, my parents want to buy this overpriced apartment in Beijing and I'm worried about it. Um, but they think, oh, the government's not going to let the, the market crash when, you know, in fact, the government has been trying very hard to kind of slowly rein in the, the property wow. market. Um, and, you know, it's not only, you know, you go to China and there's, you know, they don't have as big of a, of a social safety net, actually, as we do, which is also a, a paradox because, you know, that's not what Americans would, you know, associate uh, yeah. with the, the structure of the Chinese economy. And so, you know, whether you feel like you have a fallback or not is hugely important. There was an article I saw a couple of years ago about social entrepreneurs being mostly white, rich white kids because they've got friends and family money and they've got yeah. this, this network to fall back on. And there's, there's tons of people who are not, you know, upper middle class and wealthy white kids who've got really great ideas for saving yeah. the world. What if we could channel the capital to them to be able to take those sort of risks? Or you look at education, you know, it's yeah. the, the biggest financial risk that most people take and you take it really early before your risk brain is, is completely yeah, formed. Yes. And, uh, you know, so that, I think that goes into a lot of the debates we're having right now about student loans and things like that. Yeah. You, you talked about that in chapter six, gender risk and stereotype threat, uh, where you spoke specifically to this group of women, uh, founders who had to have a man in the room to raise VC money. Talk a little bit about that. That was very amazing. It was really powerful. Well, I sat down with, with Genevieve Tears, who's the, uh, the co-founder of SitterCity.com, uh, which she, she recently actually you know, sold. And wow. um, she's, she's the, uh, a couple years ago, Entrepreneur Magazine named her the, uh, the woman who raised the most amount of money in, in Illinois. And she's an amazing, dynamic person, very supportive of, of women entrepreneurs. And uh, we talked for, for quite a while. And she told me that story. She was in a room with you know, about a dozen top CEOs and founders in, uh, in Chicago. And they were sharing among themselves, it was crazy that they had to have a man in the room if, you know, in order for VCs to think that they, quote unquote, took enough risks. And I mean, her chief technology officer was the man who later became her husband. And, you know, yeah, so she had someone, you know, who was there and who, yeah. of course, said, you know, she's the one who's really driving this. Um, but it, there are lots of those stereotypes um, across uh, the VC industry. And there's a study that I cite uh, of people who looked at researchers who looked at measures like, you know, how many loans people took and, and you know, how much investment they did and all these, you know, risk measures. And they said, actually, you know, women are not more risk averse, that word that I hate, <laughs> than, uh, than men. And they actually said that in many cases, uh, women founded startups are more likely to succeed. Wow. So it's a matter of risk savvy, risk wisdom, and not risk 
aversion. And you you think about like all the money that's being just left on the table because VCs are not making these better business bets. Yes, I hope you listen. You're listening, you VCs out there, because you need <laughs> to hear this uh, for for all all women's sake. Because the, they they are the ones who I do feel want to you know change the world, and they're not going to be able to do so if they don't have the, the ability to raise the funds. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And this this yeah. judgment about you know who's who's a good credit risk um, yeah. is is very very complicated. And people don't often enough ask the question, you know, what's the risk of not doing this? Yeah. That's a great, great point. There is, there is that risk. That's what I often think about is the, the risk that we innately take when we don't make a decision or we choose not to do something. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's inherent risk in that. Would, would you, uh, could you expand on that? Uh, if I could quote my favorite band when I was in high school, Rush, <laughs> sure. not to decide, you still have made a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We're going to the rock beds today. No <laughs> All right. My, my favorite quote that I say this already is time management is risk management. Talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. The the choices about what you're going to do with your time, with your life are so important. I think over the last year, uh, a lot of us have had this moment, like, you know, what if I don't make it through the pandemic? What am I doing with my time? Of course, you know, the options of what you can do with your time the last year have been a lot more limited, but it's, it's really, it's led a lot of people to rethink uh, what Mm -hmm. they're doing with their life. So it's, it's time management, you know, on a big scale life choices level, but it's also on the, on the micro level. You know, this, this, uh, this, this young guy came to a, a workshop that I did on, on the gray rhino method, you know, how to use this five stage method to, uh, to make better decisions and, and to do a better job of dealing with the obvious things that you know you need to deal with, but you know, aren't getting solved. And he said, I have such a big problem with time management. He said, I'm just not good at it. And that's my gray rhino. And he started talking about it. And I said, well, what have you been trying to do to deal with it? And he said, oh, well, well, I made an app. And he said, you know, because none of the apps out there were really doing what I wanted. And he said, but it's, you know, it's funny when I'm working on this app, I can, I'm just really focused and I can move forward with it. And that occurred to me. I was like, time management is not, not really your problem. You know, it's, it's actually what you're doing with your time on a much bigger scale. It's like yeah. if you're doing something that you love and that you're good at and that people want, then yeah. you're much more likely to be using that time wisely. Yeah. And, uh, and that just really struck me. And, you know, I think it was, it was Genevieve Pierce again, who, who talked about mothers uh, becoming really good risk takers because yes. they had to make those, those choices with their time with the, you know, yeah. juggling childcare and all these other things, which, uh, you know, we've seen all the, the stories about, you know, women dropping out of the economy because of the pandemic. So that's a whole other um, <laughs> ball of wax to talk about. But it's, it's true that every single choice you make during the day, whether it's how to use, how to use your time or anything else, really yeah. is a risk. Are you wasting that time? And when you start thinking about your mortality, that question becomes even more important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's another uh, part in your book that I just wanted to speak to. I'm just looking through my notes here to just get it up here, uh, where you talked about 
these five categories, inherent and enduring traits, transitory internal states of mind, physical states, activities, effects, roles, and evaluations of these traits. Yeah, well, I think it's a chance to talk about the risk fingerprint, which I actually can't believe I haven't <laughs> brought up <laughs> yet. Please, please um, do it. And, you know, it's actually this, you know, this concept um, that, and it's why it's on the cover of, of the book, mm -hmm. uh, which is that all the choices that you make about risk identify you to the world just as distinctively as a fingerprint left on a glass in, in one of those uh, crime movies that they yeah. you know, got yeah. the powder on. And they also define you. And you know, there is actually a bit of a, of a feedback loop uh, between them. But just like a real fingerprint, there is this sort of innate part, the, the personality types that we talked about uh, yeah. before. Uh, and then, and, and those are, you know, genetically fixed. They're very, you know, they're hard to change, you know, which is why detectives use them. Yeah. But then there are the experience you've had, you know, you've cut your finger and that's going to indelibly change your fingerprint because there's a scar and the experiences that we go through shape our risk relationships. And what's interesting about that is that they don't affect everybody in the same way. You know, some people will go through a jarring, harrowing experience, which also is, it's often something that's unexpected. It's not a matter of risk taking or, you know, it might yeah. be the result of a bad risk choice, but often it's just something that comes out of the blue, you know, a civil war or whatever. Yeah. And some people go through that and they realize if I got through that, I can get through anything and they become much more comfortable with risk. And there are other people who shy way back from it. There's a, a company uh, in Central America. I talked to the, the CEO who's a 40 something recently named Ford, um, uh, fourth generation, I think, uh, CEO. Wow. And the older generations were very concerned with preservation of capital. Why? Because during the civil wars, they lost 75% of what they had because the government seized it. And the younger generation was much more concerned with things becoming obsolete and the company losing the value that way. And I actually um, you know, helped him to see that having an open discussion about risks and why people felt the way they did about risk helped kind of you know, break open that log jam of the different generations wanting different things. So there's that experience that affects your, your risk fingerprint differently depending on, on you know, who you are and also you know, your generation where you are in life. Yeah. Uh, you know, yep. Even, you know, in investment, uh, investment advisors say, okay, well, when you're young, you can afford to uh, be much more aggressive. Uh, and when you're older, then, you know, you may actually have a, a bigger cushion and, you know, you've got room for more aggressive investments, but you also want to preserve a certain amount of, of income. I mean, right now it's hard with income investments because bonds aren't hardly paying anything at all. Um, but that, you know, that where you are in life, your experience, your peer group, you know, somebody who's, you know, like the millennials I was talking about before, who've gone through a lot of uncertainty in the world around them are going to have a very, very different point of view from people who didn't go through. But there are also like habits and the things that you do. Going back mm -hmm. to the fingerprint, you know, if you're doing manual labor, mm -hmm. you've got calluses on your hands. You know, it's going to look yeah. different from if you use that soft feminine spelling lotion and keep your hands soft. And, yeah. and actually that sort of ongoing habit of looking at your risk fingerprint and what you can do to change the circumstances is so powerful. And that involves you know, surrounding yourselves with the right people, as, as I talked about uh, before. Uh, yeah. It also involves, you know, what does it take to make you feel more comfortable 
in a certain mm. situation. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, for some people, tons more information really helps. Yeah. Uh, and for some people, they just get overwhelmed and freak out. Yeah. So understand yeah. what makes you comfortable with it. Um, and then, you know, look at your circumstances and look at this portfolio of risks across your life, you know, mm. your career, your relationship, your, your health, um, your finances, your, you know, sort of ethical stance. You yes. probably have very different attitudes in each of these buckets. And if you're looking at all of them and you want to do something really risky in one bucket, it probably makes sense to find ways to create a sense of security in one of the other ones. And if, you know, if you're at, you know, five on a scale of one to five in all of your buckets, you might be on the, the risk burnout uh, scale. So, yeah. you know, this, yeah. but this mindfulness is such a huge and powerful tool being aware of your, your risk fingerprint and then exercising risk empathy, understanding the risk empath- the risk fingerprints of the people around you, whether it's yeah. you know your team or your employees or your investors or your family. Yeah. That also you know because the people around you affect uh, your ability to take risk. You know that also affects you if you Absolutely. you know you, if you understand what makes them more comfortable, they can be there for you as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How, how would you recommend somebody does identify their risk fingerprint? Uh, is there particular steps you recommend they take to begin with if this is the first time they're even hearing this concept? Sure. Well, there's, of course, a lot more about it uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But one of the first questions you ask is, okay, what's, what's the biggest risk that you ever took? People love that one. And it usually kind of really gets people thinking for a while and it really surprises people. How about you, Lucas? Can you think of it off the top of your head? Um, no, I'm not. I'm not sure. Probably moving away from home, like to you know Los Angeles. That was a mm-hmm. that was a pretty big risk. Not having a job. That was fun. <laughs> moving and not having a job on top yeah. of each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. What What was your answer, Michelle, to that question when you posed it? Oh goodness! It's you know I you know look back at life and there are so many things. Um, yeah. Uh, you know I think the thing I think it was really committing to writing and I've sort of retaken that risk in different ways throughout my life. But yeah. uh, when I finished graduate school, I was a, a reporter first for Dow Jones and then uh, an analyst for International Financing Review, and you know I was paying back my student loans and it was you know it was yeah. a very good yeah. job for uh, you know for you know just out of school at the time. And um, the risk I took was actually neglecting uh, to look at this risk across these buckets. So I was, you know, I was commuting from Manhattan to Jersey City, and super high stress job. I mean, you know, writing about these, you know, trading markets all day long, yeah. trading Brady bonds, and uh, writing a book uh, on nights and weekends, and sort of at the end stages of a relationship whose, you know, lifetime had probably expired mm-hmm. sometime earlier and just like pushing and pushing and pushing all these things, taking a huge risk with my health. And I, I one day started crying. I'm not a crier. And I had no idea why I was crying. Wow. It's kind of obvious right now, right? You know, the, the, the amount of, of stress. And so I went, I found this really good uh, cognitive behavioral therapist who helped me to like rate the level of stress every day and what I was doing about it and just that action of monitoring it started yeah. to help quite a bit. And uh, but I kind of, you know, that kind of 
calm things down for a little bit. And um, then uh, I, the next year I actually got sick, like physically very sick, was, was diagnosed oh, with chronic fatigue syndrome. And, um, you know, I think now it's probably undiagnosed celiac disease and other things. And you're probably just pure yeah. exhaustion, right? Like, yep. And yeah. um, my doctor told me you have to take a medical leave from work, wow. Wow. which I was not crazy about. But but I did. Yeah. I took six <laughs> weeks off. Um, I went to, to Austin, Texas, where I had wow. a lot of friends and um, hung out. And that's where I really committed to writing my first book, uh, Why wow. the Cox Fight. And I came back from that and I was like, yeah, I could stay with this, this financial writing job, but you know what, if I do it, I'm going to get sick again. And you know, yeah, my student loans are going to be paid off and yeah, I'm going to have a big 401k, but you know, I'm going to lose it all again if I'm not healthy. And for me, for me to be healthy, I need to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that goes back to the, you know, the, the purpose and the path that I was talking about before yeah. that, you know, that sometimes it becomes very clear that there is only one path and yeah. the risk is not taking that path that might appear to other people to be hugely risky. Yeah. I think, I think that was the most, one of the most powerful things I read in your book, because I have always thought I was irrational for being this entrepreneur, from walking away from a crazy good salary in finance. And yet for me, it didn't feel at all risky because I knew this is what I was called to do. But I have struggled with that reconciliation of it looked irresponsible or it was crazy. But now when I read that in your book, I thought, oh, that's why to me it didn't feel like a risk. It felt like the only path there was that I could take. So that was very helpful. So thank it's you true. for that. And it goes to a concept that, that my editor, Jessica Case, really asked me to expand a little bit, this idea of risk, risk privilege, that, you know, the wow. risk is a choice. And having that choice, you know, really is a privilege. Yes. And a lot of people don't necessarily have it. I mean, there, there's sometimes if you're a refugee, it's, it's not really a choice, you know, between yeah. certain death and poverty at home and getting on yeah. that rickety raft and braving the, the sharks. Right. And, um, you know, I think with me, I had, you know, I had a supportive family. I had a certain amount of, mm. of money stocked away. I had yeah. skills that are you know worth quite a bit. And, yeah. you know, so it was, you know, it was a privilege to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I, I recognize that. And, you know, I just think about so much untapped human potential in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of the people who, who don't have those kind of choices because they didn't have the sort of underlying support system. And I go back to that question, you know, what's the risk of not creating this? Yeah. You talk about economic growth, you talk about healthy societies, and there's got to be a better way to do it to ensure that that there's not so much human capital that we're just just throwing away because there, there's a, there are a lot of people who've got big dreams and yeah. may not have been born into the resources to be able to uh, to pursue them. Never mind individual satisfaction. I mean, if we have a whole bunch of people walking around who are really deeply happy with what they do every day, it's going to be a different world. People are going <laughs> to interact with each other very radically different than if they're doing what they think they're supposed to do or is less risky, quote unquote. Yeah. So you get much more productivity, you get lower yes. health costs, yes. you know, yes. you get higher tax revenues, you create yes. a virtuous circle yes. instead of what we got now. 
That's right. Absolutely. God knows we need something better than what we got now. (laughs) Michelle, uh, you know, we could talk for another hour with you. So maybe you'll be willing to come back on at some point after you finish this book tour. There's so many questions more that I have on my list, but I think we'll close it there because I'm sure you have lots of other podcasts to do today. Your book is extraordinary. It's changing my life. I know it's going to change the trader's life that I work with and that Lucas works with. So thank you for taking, how long did it take you to write, by the way? You know, you get asked that all the time. I never know how to answer. Like, I don't really know how to to count, you know, because it's kind of (laughs) on and off. But I think I got the idea when in, in, um, I think in 2018, I think was when I decided, yes, this is the direction that, that I wanted to go. Oh, damn, and, sister, that's um, quick. That's, that's a quick. quick turnaround. 70 <laughs> people it being featured in it. It is such a breath, like wide, deep breath of experiences, people, and the way you put them into the perspective of risk. It's it's an astonishing work of art. So thank you for it. Thank you. And thank you for, for loving it as much as I do. Yeah, I really do. I love it very much. And I love you. I'm so happy to know you. And thank you for coming on our podcast. And please let us have you back on soon. Okay. Would love that. I'm so happy to know you as well. And look forward to meeting you in person when that's a thing again. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Come to come to Hawaii and we'll, we'll show you how, how another version of risk unfolds here, which is very (laughs) different than, um, Northeast New York City and North Chicago. I think I could manage that. (laughs) I think you could too. I think you do just great. All right. Well, we'll close it there. Everybody, please let us know what you think uh, about this amazing book. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your trading. Uh, And we'll see you on the next episode of the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.